After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. Hey, this is Stan Geip. I'm here for another edition of our David vs. Goliath podcast. And today we're honored to have a special guest, Keith Fuseli of Colorado. Keith is an attorney that does a lot of work in brain injury cases and in the brain injury space. And he's got a little bit of a unique story himself as to how he ended up here. Before we get too deep into things, as we were talking right before we got onto this podcast, Keith was telling me, you just finished up a brain injury trial. Is that correct? You know, one of the mild traumatic brain injury, post-concussive syndrome cases that any lawyers out there are dealing with and had a successful outcome-ish, like one of these cases where we won barely, but we still won. And uh, so, yeah, we, we handle a lot of brain injury cases and certainly know the difficulties that the lower end of the brain injury cases present in the litigation space. You know, I've always said this when the, the term mild traumatic brain injury, okay, the only brain injury that's mild is someone else's, okay? <laughs> you've never sitting in there. If you think you've got a brain injury, there's nothing mild about what's going on with you. What's crazy about brain injuries, and so, as you may know, I am a brain injury survivor, and I had a moderate to severe brain injury. I had a month of post-traumatic amnesia, which in the brain injury world is just massive, and Yet you look at me and you hear me and I'm doing great. And yet someone can have a concussion, a mild concussion, a minor concussion, no loss of consciousness, and have devastating outcomes. And I truly believe in my heart of hearts that with brain injury, it's like the tip of the iceberg, what we understand. In fact, I just saw uh, a news article that came out this week that was talking about they just identified 200 different types of cells in the brain. So... I would predict that you look back 10, 15, 20 years from now about how science knows about how the brain actually works. And it's just going to be apples and oranges to what we think we know right now. So the challenge, of course, is you've got this data, you've got these mild traumatic brain injury cases. You know, what do you do with them at trial? It's a never ending challenge. And of course, the insurance company is always ready, eager and willing to make you go try the case. And there are some of the most difficult cases to try and prove up. I mean, if you got someone with a scoop missing out of their brain, something big has happened. That's a different game. When we're talking mild traumatic brain injury, as as you grow up, I mean, if you tell someone who got a shoulder injury, people understand how the shoulder works. There's pictures of it moving. You, you just intuitively understand, you know, there's a socket, a ball, this When we're talking about the brain, there's no moving parts. It's hard to take pictures of how the dysfunction is there. And we got to rely on really high-level imaging and high-level scientific studies, which almost get so complicated sometimes that there's a lot of holes the defense can poke at them. Yeah, my – and, you know, we just had that in the last trial that I just did. And I'll be honest, I think we made a mistake introducing the three-Tesla brain that showed these – white matter lesions. And and here's the problem. And I knew it going in and I tried to figure out what we could do to overcome this, but we're forced into a situation where we had to prove that those brain white matter lesions were caused from the crash, which isn't legally true. We just had to prove the symptoms were caused from the crash. But as soon as we sort of introduced that imaging 
And then the defense, of course, hired a neuroradiologist to say, these are normal findings, you know, mild traumatic brain injuries don't produce axonal shearing, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all of a sudden, we've inadvertently raised the burden of proof to you know way up here on the brain injury piece. So I am not yet sold that for mild you know, concussions, mild traumatic brain injuries, it makes a lot of sense to go the DTI route, the three Tesla MRI, unless it's done within weeks of the crash and you have gliosis or something to be able to establish the acute nature of the trauma. Otherwise, I feel like we're talking about science that is going over the jurors' heads. It is a right field for the defense to hire their experts to come in and fight. As opposed to just coming in, this is sort of my hindsight, how I would have done the trial better attitude, is you just go in and you say, look, post-concussive syndrome. Most people have concussions get better. Some don't. And this person didn't. So I feel like that maybe gives you a better chance at prevailing a trial. You know, I had a local attorney who's now deceased that used to get some higher end brain injury verdicts say that exact same thing. Like the the closer you get to diagnosing an acute individual cause of a brain injury, the more definitive path of attack you're giving the defense attorney. Now, instead mm-hmm. of disproving this cognitive disorder, disproving all of this, all they need to disprove is the one little thing and the rest kind of sits on its shoulders. Because we don't know who's going to be listening, what's a mild traumatic brain injury? Because people are used to hearing traumatic brain injury. What's it mean to have a mild one? Yeah, and of course, you kind of touched on it before because there's a great peer-reviewed site that says, you know, mild can mean anything but, you know, for the person that experiences it. And anytime we're in trial and we're talking about mild traumatic brain injury, you hear the word mild about a thousand times throughout the trial. And it really, of course, has the nature of downplaying the significance. It's mild traumatic brain injury is right? Any loss of consciousness less than what, 24 hours. So you have this, basically a concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. And the two terms are interchangeable. And so that's kind of the field you're playing with, with these mild traumatic brain injury cases. And the term itself is uh, just a gift for the defense always. And when we're dealing with brain injury cases, when any kind of case, when we're presenting evidence, we're trying to prove up stuff to the jury, a lot of it's based on findings, okay? We got objective findings and subjective findings. If I go get into a bike rack, break my arm, okay, I go to the ER, I can show a, you know, a picture of a broken arm, an x-ray. It's really hard for some defense attorney to get in there and say, oh, he didn't break his arm. You're going to show it to a jury. Jury's going to say, what are you talking about? Like, I can see the broken arm. That's solid objective evidence. You know, subjective evidence would be me saying, oh, this is a 10 out of 10 as opposed to a 7 out of 10 or a 6 out of 10. The only reason you know that's because I'm telling you my own subjective complaints of pain. Subjective complaints are always much more open to attack. And then with respect to most brain injuries, we are almost relying purely on subjective evidence, like what you're talking about, with some nuanced you know, scans, but most of them aren't going to have real solid objective findings when we're talking about brain injuries. Do you find that that almost ends up being one of the biggest problems when bringing these to trial? For sure. And it's almost worse than how you characterize it, because as you may know, the standard for diagnosing concussion 
is basically put out by the American College of Rehabilitative Medicine. And they just revised it this year. And they just revised it to make it a lot harder to actually diagnose a concussion so that purely subjective complaints most of the time aren't going to get you the concussion diagnosis. The trial that we just did, and of course, we'll talk about how first responders, emergency room people, they miss the concussion more than 50% of the time. And it's even worse because not only are they missing the concussion, but because of the way medical records work, all the entries in the medical record are, oh, patient was alert and oriented and spoken fluid sentences, has a recall of events, even though the reality is the practitioners are not actually doing a concussive assessment. So the trial that we just did, our client took her car into the mechanic the day of the crash and was slurring her words. Still, not enough to convince the jury that she had a concussion. So the subjective nature of concussions in general make them extraordinarily hard to win a trial. And you just absolutely have to have those lay witnesses that are there before and after seeing what the person is experiencing if you don't have an emergency room diagnosis of a concussion. Let me ask, is there any specific testing? Like if someone's got a concussion, they, they've just recently got it, let's say in the last couple of days, a decent concussion. Is there any testing that's advisable to do right around the time of the concussion that something you want to document so it doesn't go away? Yes. And that is a great question because, so first of all, if it's from a car crash, most of the time that people sustain concussions in car crash, it's coup contra coup, which is the brain going back, the brain going forward inside the skull, hitting the back hits where the occipital lobe is, and then the front hits the prefrontal cortex. Well, because our occipital lobe is in the back of the brain, the vision aspect is extremely susceptible to coup contra coup injuries. And the visual aspect can be objectively measured. So there's a vision test called a VNG testing, which can be done by qualified optometrist or ophthalmologist that can do this testing and provide extremely powerful objective evidence of a concussion through the visual field. You can also have nystagmus. So some of your listeners may know, you know, the drunk driving test, the where they do the follow the follow your finger. Well, what they're looking for is nystagmus or a jerking of the muscles in the eye, which is involuntary, which is objective evidence. And so you can have nystagmus oftentimes shortly after a concussion that would give you objective evidence of the concussion. You kind of hit on one thing that has been almost the bane of my practice at times, and it's the medical records, not just medical records in general. Okay, back when doctors hand wrote their medical records, everything was pretty much accurate and relevant. Now we have, if you go to the emergency room, you're going to see about in eight pages of documents, you're going to see about a paragraph about what happened to that person. And then for various CYAs and billing procedures, they need to document every other part of their body. And if the person doesn't mention it, it says no problem. Okay. Right. They go into this and then the defense, you know, will use this. Well, hey, when they went into this doctor, they say the neck's okay or there's no problem with the shoulder. And, and you'll be looking and sure, these are gynecological records. The person's not in there talking about their shoulder. Okay. But because of the way medical records are now, there's going to be a document that this is essentially okay 
if a person doesn't make an affirmative complaint about it. Have you seen that? You are hitting the nail on the head and Kaiser records are the worst. If they, The Kaiser records, they'll just repeat as the problem list, migraines, TMJ, like for years. And so you're stuck having to explain it. You are 100% right. It's the bane of our existence. And so I've come up with some ideas on how to try to address this. The first is to ask in jury selection, assuming you're in a place where you get to ask attorney-directed questions in jury selection, are there any members on this panel that have been involved or are familiar in any way with how medical records are created or know someone who's involved in how medical records are created? So hopefully you get someone. And then you can also do this through medical experts in trial. The point is you establish from jury selection through trial that the quality of medical records can vary as greatly as the quality of anything. Some people, like you said, they're really great. They're taking handwritten notes when you're in there. They're putting stuff in their electronic medical records contemporaneously, so it's accurate. Other people see 10 patients, come back at the end of the day and are like, what did, what did Sally Joe tell me? Next thing you go, Sally Joe reported no loss of consciousness. Meanwhile, she's found unconscious at the scene. So I think you have to address it head on and from jury selection throughout witnesses. And just hopefully you have a situation like the trial that we just did where there were things in the medical record that were easily proven to be mistakes. One other great question that I asked my client at this last trial was, did any of the medical providers ever ask you to review the records for accuracy? And of course, no one ever does. And for any of your listeners, if you've ever looked at your medical records, you'll just be floored by what is in there and what's not in there. So it is the bane of our practice. And I'm still trying to figure out the way to go away from trying the case on the medical records and trying to go and, elsewhere. You know, I'll take it to a second sort of level here beyond that. In addition to medical records, you generally find two different kinds of doctors out there. And we're not talking about skill level or anything like that, because there are some very skilled doctors at, at really on, in both of these groups. But there are certain doctors who really, they're out here to fix people. That is it. I am here to make them better. I don't care what caused it. I'm not getting into what caused it. It's not my job to address what caused it, nor is it my job to address how it was or how much worse it is. My job is to look at what's here and fix it. And when we run into those doctors, they can be excellent doctors. They can be excellent practitioners. They can be some of the most skilled in the industry. But the way they document the file can hurt the client because any of that stuff from a treating doctor is going to be used against them. It's almost as though the treating doctors have to be somewhat of a patient advocate in this arena or else – when the defense attacks it, when the defense attacks their finding, they're likely to go, you know what? You may be right. Yeah, I don't care how this was caused. I'm just here to fix it. Yeah, it's almost – you bring up such a good point because you'd almost rather have a treating doctor that falls into the camp of, I don't know what – like take a disc herniation. I don't know what caused this disc herniation. I'm just saying there's a herniation there. It needs surgery. We're going to go in and, and take it out and put an infusion or whatever. Or you got to have a treating doctor that is willing to – review all the prior medical records and basically do an IME so that their opinion is less subject to attack. And then inevitably what happens with those doctors is they are going to get attacked and they're not going to want to keep doing that work 
unless you pay them a lot of money because the truth is it's just miserable work dealing with attorneys and defense attorneys and all the attorneys. It's just, you'd much rather just go in and say, here's the problem, I'd like to fix it. We also have a problem here in Colorado where some, do some doctors like Kaiser doctors, we can't talk to them. They will come to court and testify. And then I just had the defense lawyer at the last trial just did say, where's the, where's the primary care doctor? Why isn't he here to testify? So now not only are you having to deal with what's in medical records that may or may not be accurate, now you're left with trying to explain why particular doctors are or are not there. So it's a never ending cat and mouse game. You got to address it in jury selection. And then you got to bring in, so here we use routinely plaintiff IME doctors to review all the records and be able to come in and, and deal with it that way. I don't know what the rules are in Colorado, but we have sort of a distinct line between treating doctors and experts. We have some hybrid experts where a treating physician is going to opine on some of these other issues, but there's sort of a line between treating doctors and experts. I, as a, an attorney, I cannot pay my client's treating doctor to treat them, okay? And that's can pay experts for their opinion. Well, where it gets gray, okay, I've got a treating doctor that wants to go in and let's say see your patient, right? That's a office visit, maybe even a level five office visit, the most complicated. Maybe that's supposed to take 45 minutes of his time face-to-face -face doing all this stuff. Well, that's what's contemplated by the CPT code, which is the code they bill for this service. And that's what's contemplated by the rate. When I send that doctor 3,000 pages of documents to review and now I say, look, I want you to look at all this and tell me if this problem was caused by the accident. Oh, and by the way, I'm not going to be able to pay you to do that. You know what they do. You don't have to be a genius. Everyone listening knows where this is going, right? They're like, are you crazy? I don't, yeah. you know, so I don't care. Yeah. They don't want to do that. So it's my clients had this at time. Having not gone through this before, they struggle to understand why certain doctors are the ones they need to be at. They struggle to understand why you're jumping through so many hoops to document things that may seem common sense because we know what's coming. You know exactly where the defense is and what darts they're throwing. And you're trying to put that shield up before the bullets come. Yeah, it, it's so hard, too, because you hit the nail on the head again, because clients know their truth, right? The client's like, I don't understand why this is so hard. I didn't have any of these problems before. Now I got all these problems. What are you talking about? I mean, the defense is going to try to argue this wasn't caused from the crash. Are you crazy? And our response is, yes, that is exactly what they are going to do. And they're going to hire very well-credentialed people that are going to pull an MRI of your neck or your back and say, oh, this is all degenerative. It was there before. This is all just a big coincidence. So it is difficult. We had a change in our local rules, the Colorado Rules of Civil Procedure, that give us a little more leeway with treating doctors being allowed to opine on causation. And we would be allowed to sort of pay a treating doctor for their time to review records. But in federal court in Colorado, you do that. That absolutely, anytime a treating doctor is opining on causation, they are now a retained expert, which has slightly but not too onerous different disclosure requirements here than a treating doctor. And personally, from the trial standpoint, I don't really care if they're retained or not retained. What I care about is whether they're a treater or not. Yeah. Right. So you get to closing and it's who are you going to believe the treating doctor or the doctor hired by the plaintiff or the defense that reviewed all the records and doesn't have that 
physician-patient relationship. Well, and I try to hit on this at trial as much as I can within bounds, but the physician-patient relationship is special, okay? That when we're talking about a CME doctor coming in, if I'm a treating physician and I am wrong every single time, I'm getting sued and I'm going out of business. If I'm a CME doctor, right, and I can't find injuries on anybody and I think everybody's okay, I'm getting rich and I'm hired on every case, even if I'm wrong. Because can't be sued as a CME. You have no obligation to the patient. You have no obligation to be right. And you get paid way more to see these people than you would in a situation where you're obligated to get it right. That's why the treating doctors are so important, right? Because that, right there, that's you just you must be, have a great success at trial because that is a perfect closing argument, right? You have a treating doctor, you have doctor hired by the defense, and you know we do hire a lot of plaintiff doctors to do IMEs or however you want, whatever you want to call them, just because it makes our life easier dealing with all the treatment as opposed to parading in a bunch of treaters. But hopefully that argument lands. And uh, what I like to do too is use that argument with the lower burden of civil cases, more likely right than wrong. You put those two things together. I say, look, we just have to probably be right. We have to just be able to establish that this crash probably caused what's going on. And how have we not done that? So that's how we do it here. Well, we get the same thing. I, I sort of flip that back a little bit a lot of times on the CME doctors because, hey, you know, more likely than not, this injury should have cleared up within three months. It's a sprain strain type of injury, should have taken 90 days worth of treatment, which gives them the ability to testify to it here. Our burden of proof more likely than not. It really takes a lot of work to, and I know you've done this in dealing with these cases forever, it really takes a lot of work to pin the doctors down and learn exactly how to depose them and, and where to go because you really got to get them to say, look, this was the expected outcome, right? The expected outcome was that this could go away within three months. Okay, please show me the medical record that shows you where that expected outcome was achieved. Right. Okay, so if you can't point to the medical record saying that expected outcome was achieved, how do you come to the conclusion that we actually reached the expected outcome? Some of your patients don't get the expected outcome from their treatments, correct? And, you know, it's marching them down sort of that, that line of you can testify to this because it's more likely than not. And I'm getting a little tangential on this, but the best example I've used to a jury on this that I think resonates most likely, let's say I've got a shot here, right? And it's got a one in 10 shot chance of killing you. Before I give someone that shot, you can say reasonable degree of medical probability they're not going to die because less than 50% chance, right? I give someone that shot and they drop dead. You can no longer say reasonable degree of medical probability the shot didn't kill them. Once you have the unexpected outcome has occurred, it shifts to causation analysis because we already know the outcome. It didn't go away, right? You didn't achieve. So you draw that in distinction. It's funny when you get in with some of the CME doctors and you start dancing with them on those examples, they, have, they struggle with it because a lot of it is baloney. Well, and we're coming right back to the brain injury piece because the post syndrome, right? Yeah. And in the last, that trial, I said in my opening, hey, you know, there's a lot of dispute in the medical literature about how often people get post-concussive syndrome. Some studies say 5%, some say 50 But the question for you is not whether or not I was likely to get a concussion in this crash or you were likely to get it. The question is whether or not this human over here sustained a concussion and has post-concussive syndrome. And picking back on your gun analogy, which I love, I even did this with one of the cross-examinations in that trial. I said, and, you know, most planes don't crash, right? 
And that all you have to do is say that. And then immediately the jurors are like, okay, they can do that own analogy in their head. Just right there, most planes don't crash. Because I think it's really takes it away from this probability to was this particular person injured. And going back to what you were saying about sprained strains, I mean, that just seems like a huge gift. When you have the defense doctor saying, well, this was a sprained strain, should have resolved. I mean, great. So you're saying they were hurt. So, okay, most people would have, this person didn't. Okay, let's go. Now, we hit on this a little bit at the beginning, but tell me a little bit, what is what was the situation with your brain injury? How did this happen? I know it's kind of a big event for you in your life and sort of shaped your practice a little bit. A breakdown on the story. Yeah, yeah. So I was, uh, it happened in 2007. So crazy that it's 15 years ago. 15 years ago. <laughs> so I was jogging and I was coming home from jogging, crossing a street, not in a crosswalk because I'm an idiot with headphones on, but a car hit me going 45 miles an hour. I totaled the car. I had to be resuscitated at the scene. I spent two weeks at Denver Health out here. It saved my life. I don't remember any of it. And then I was very fortunate to spend two months at Craig Hospital so Colorado has one of the best, if not the best, brain and spinal cord rehabilitation hospitals in the country, Craig Hospital. So I spent two months at Craig Hospital, and uh, you know I was a I was a personal injury lawyer when it happened. So I was joking around like as I was flying through the air, you hit the wrong person. But uh, it took me at least a year and a half before I felt like I had recovered. And even then, it just continued to get sort of better over time. And I still do have, for sure, some deficits from that experience. And I'm certain I'm a better trial lawyer because of it, which is kind of a crazy thing to say, because like, I don't have the stamina and like, I don't remember people's names and like my memory's not, but you know what it did is it humbled me in a way that, because I was probably, I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I was one of these cocky, I'm such a great trial lawyer, I'm so great. And I feel like it was God kind of like picking me up and being like, you are not shit. So I think, you know, we, we are the sum of our parts and things happen to us in life, good, bad, or indifferent. And we choose how we're going to allow those things to define our existence. And for me, it sounds crazy, but that was a positive thing that I went through, which is nuts. You kind of hit on something that we didn't talk about yet, and I'll almost maybe tee this up as the last thing we discuss before we close here, but I really think what you're talking about makes a huge difference for my client presentation at trial. And I think the difference between a client who goes, oh, it's awful, the doctors tell me it's going to be awful, I'm never going to recover, and the client who goes, the doctors tell me it's going to be awful, but I'm going to prove them wrong. Okay. The yes. second client is so much more compelling. You know, if someone says the doctors tell me I'm never going to walk, but I'm going to prove them wrong. Okay. That's such an inspiring feeling for a jury as opposed to the doctors tell me I'm never going to walk and it's so awful. Yeah. And isn't it crazy too, because I am firmly convinced that how people believe that they're going to recover is how they're going to recover. It's it's like outcome determinative. And I think that I'm a perfect example that I can remember I was in Craig Hospital and I was like, I don't understand why I'm here. Like all these other people, they're all messed up really bad. Like, I don't understand what I'm doing here. I'm going to be fine. And I just had that 
firm belief that I was absolutely going to recover, and I did. And it's not to diminish the reality of the injuries that our clients all experience because they are devastating injuries and all of the hope and positive outlook in the world cannot change physiology, but it still has such a huge impact. And specifically with brain injuries, I do think that there's some real risk in, uh, and defense neuropsychologists and defense experts jump on this, right? I, but I think there's some potential truth there. When you have our clients being told, you're so messed up, you have all these cognitive deficits, your life's never going to be the same. There's a real danger in, as a, from a human to a human, beating that down someone. So I don't know if that's landing or not, but that's just my personal belief. Going back to what you said, anytime you have a client that is persevering, has a positive outlook in which there is hope, those verdicts will always be much higher, frankly, than the, oh, woe is me, my life is over, despair. I agree 100%. Keith, you know, thanks for coming out and talking to us today. We're running on about 30 minutes, so it's been informative. It's been entertaining. I enjoyed every bit of it. But before I forget, if anyone wants to contact you, Keith, what's a good way to get in touch with the website, email addresses, phone numbers, things like that? Sure. Well, hopefully we've got easy phone numbers and email web address. So our phone number is 303-444-4444. So we have the fours in Colorado and our website's coloradoinjurylaw.com. So very easy to find us here. And we do cases all throughout Colorado and really throughout the country, but mostly Colorado. But uh, email is just Keith at coloradoinjurylaw.com. Love to hear from people. All right, Keith, thanks for coming out. This is Stan Geip wrapping up another episode of the David vs. Goliath podcast. You know where to find us at dolmanlaw.com should you ever need us. And it's been fun, Keith. Thanks. This episode of David vs. Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D-O-L-M-A-N law.com or call 866-965-6242. The insights and views presented in David vs. Goliath are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.